Hi, how's everyone? All right, turn to the person next to you and ask them, if not for church, where would you be this Deepavali weekend? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, if not, if not for church, where would you be this Deepavali? Any of you would have been outstationed? You, all, you, you almost made plans to go outstationed? No? None of you? Yeah, that's because when you make plans, you see it through. And you didn't make plans, that's why you're here. Amen. <laughs> okay, um, uh, it's a joy. It's a joy uh, to have taken all of us through this series. Um, I, I like to do this myself. I, I, you know, I, every time I go back to main church, they'll be like, three or four people go like, oh, Pastor Fox, can I help you with this? You know? And, uh, and I'm always gonna, I, I will always tell them, it's okay, I can do this myself. You know, I, it's good, I got it. You know? um, and I do, I do, I got it. Yeah, all right, cool. Um, so, uh, it's, as I said, it's a joy uh, to have taken all of us through this series on Song of Solomon uh, because I think that it's been, it's been a kind of journey uh, for all of us through a difficult text, often uh, difficult to understand, obscure, and we ask a lot of questions about why it is even there, right? So, how many of you, uh, you've caught uh, both of the previous installments of songs? Uh, uh, can you just throw, throw your hands all the way up, all the way up, all the way up so I can see, okay? Uh, so, okay, put your hands down. How many of you, you've caught one of the two? Just only one of the two. Throw your hands all the way up so I can see. Okay. All right. Hands down. How many of you, you have caught none? All, all the way up. Okay. All the way up. If you've only caught one, none. Okay. Cool. Okay. If you have caught none, it might be a little bit uh, uh, startling. Okay. But it's okay. You, 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 you'll go with it. You know. Um, I believe that as we've been going through songs, actually I've been, I've been preaching it very differently. Normally I preach in like big heavy points. You know, one by one and then i realized that as i've been preaching through songs i've been layering and layering and i've been revisiting things because i just just kind of feel that it needs to be introduced and then layered a little bit the next week and then layered again the week after and so today um i want to share with us that we're finally coming to the place where we can where we can talk about song of solomon as as a metaphor as a symbolic picture of the love that the church has for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for the church. But, but one, of the, one of the things is that historically, a lot of the times, uh, the church, the early church fathers, uh, um, church leaders, popes, ancient popes, all the way up to modern day scholars and Bible commentators have tended to jump straight to a symbolic reading. Okay, they jump straight to what we call an allegorical reading. And really, that's owing to the fact that the church has always had an uncomfortable relationship with sex. Okay, we've always had an uncomfortable relationship um, with sex, with physical intimacy. And, and, and you can almost understand why. You can almost understand why. The Greek and Roman cultures that the early church came into and grew out from um, was extremely uh, liberal, uh, um, if you can say. Um, they certainly did not have uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, ideas about 
about chastity and purity and, and all these things that we understand today. They, had, they, they were the kind of cultures that had fertility goddesses, right? They were the kind of cultures um, whose fertility temples, and there wasn't just one fertility goddess, right? There were fertility gods for men, there were fertility goddesses for women. And if you go to the ancient temples in Greece, um, um, and, and I've seen uh, uh, tourist photos of it, right? Um, archaeological photos of the fertility god in, in Corinth, right? You go to the museum, you go to their temple, and you have uh, um, this, this penile-shaped uh, 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 things that will be hanging off the walls. I remember uh, um, seeing some of it. We saw those pictures in uh, uh, Reverend Gayong's class, a New Testament survey, right? And you have all these uh, um, uh, testicles and, 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 and penile kind of structures, and, 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 and it becomes an object of, of um, I don't know if worship is the right uh, 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 thing to say, but it becomes an object of, of fascination, becomes an object of aspiration, you know? And so that is the kind of milieu that the church came out of. And so it's understandable why the church would kind of react or, or if, if, if you may say, knee-jerk on this topic of sex. And, and understandable also because Jesus in several places said that if you look at a woman lustfully, speaking to the men, right, uh, um, uh, uh, it's as if you've committed adultery with her in, in, in your heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, you know, it's better you cut it off, better, that, better to go into, into, into heaven with one arm than to go into hell with both your arms intact. You know, that kind of language. And, and maybe one day we can look into some of that, you know, as well. But I think we can kind of empathize. Actually, I've learned to empathize with the early church for the way in which it knee-jerked and swung in one opposite direction in terms of having uh, uh, a kind of maybe a more nuanced and a more balanced way to approach the whole topic of sex.
lust for women. He's talking here about his about his struggles with his sexual fantasy. So he's trying to stay on God. He's trying to stay, keep his mind on Jesus. Okay, but his his whole body is inflamed with sexual fantasies. That's Jerome. So so it's only one half naked human on my slides today. I promise you. Okay. Um, oh, you don't laugh, one. So awkward, you know. <laughs> Jerome says this, I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. This is his sexual fantasy, okay? My face was pale with fasting, but though my limbs were cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire, and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. Oof. Very modern. Very modern. I think many of us uh, know what this feels like. I know what this feels like, though I don't sit around half naked with a skull on my study desk. Um, but 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 I think we can all kind of identify with this, right? Now, um, that and into this world, right, of suppression of sexual desires, it's understandable why in the earliest days of church history when they look at Song of Solomon, they don't know what to do with it. Because when this is your worldview, and this is your idea of holiness, and I'm not saying it's wrong, eh? I'm just saying that when, when you subject um, all your faculties to such a stringent and strict uh, uh, sense of sexual ethic, okay, and then you encounter Song of Solomon, which is so almost, almost so brazen in its celebration of physicality, you don't know what to do with it. And as a result, okay, um, uh, the, the, the earliest uh, uh, his church uh, theologians have always trended towards reading Song of Solomon as an allegory. Now, what's an allegory? An allegory um, is, is essentially saying that this whole thing is symbolic. It is metaphorical. That either it's no real man and no real woman, okay, um, because all of these are symbols, or even if there was a real man and there was a real woman, it's not very important, right? It doesn't really matter who they were, what they did, and all that. The most important thing to read from this is the symbolism. It is an allegory. Everybody say allegory. Okay? Everybody say allegorical. Wow. Okay. Grammarly, right? Um, <laughs> um, so, and the idea is that songs is entirely symbolic of God's love for his people and the people's love back for God. Now, here's the thing, okay? Because of this, now, I'm just going to give you a few examples of allegories, right? Famous allegories, okay, throughout church history. Three of the most famous allegories in church history. Okay, y'all ready? Y'all want to guess? <laughs> the three most famous, okay, allegories in church history are Pilgrim's Progress, Chronicles of Narnia, and Everworld. I'm kidding, right? This is um, an SIBKL musical um, from 2012, right? From 2012. Um, Pilgrim's Progress is, uh, how many of you have heard of it? Heard of it? Uh, read it? Read it? 
No, no why, dude? Shusi and Nathalia and 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 my mom-in-law, right? Uh, um, <laughs> have read Pilgrim's Progress, so it's like um, chastity. It's like a girl who meets a uh, um a uh, uh, faith, you know, and then and then their sister is Grace, you know, and then. And, and, and the main character is Christian and that kind of thing, right? And so they go on this journey and Christian goes on this journey of, of adventuring with a guy called Faithfulness, you know? And so all of the characters symbolize something, right? They symbolize something. They're not so-called real in and of themselves, but they symbolize something. In Chronicles of Narnia, um, by the way, if you're a young parent, I, I, I would highly encourage that you get the whole set and you read the Chronicles of Narnia to your kids. We do, we, we read through the Narnia series, all seven books, once every year. Okay, so for the last three years, uh, we'll read through something about, takes about half a year, one chapter a night. We kind of read through the whole seven books every year, round and round and round. And so as they grow older, they remember the stories, they read it for themselves, and they feel like hearing it read to them. Um, the lion is Aslan. Aslan represents Jesus, the oldest brother is Peter. Peter, in some ways, represents Peter, uh, the high priest. In, in, in uh, Peter, the the Peter, the disciple, right? Um, Simon Peter, right? Um, there is a white witch who represents uh, uh, the devil. You know, um, the, in the first book, there is a boy and a little girl called Diggory and Polly. They kind of represent Adam and Eve. You know, so 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 these are allegories. And and SIBKL is a musical called Everworld. And in Everworld, um, the king. Uh, call uh, sends out an invitation to come to his kingdom, right? And everybody throughout his kingdom is making their way to his palace. And as they are making their way um, to see the king, they go through all of these trials and challenges, and some fall along the way, some die, some turn back, some walk back. That's an allegory. It's on Spotify. I grabbed this from Spotify, this picture. So, so you can go to YouTube, watch the whole uh, uh, musical uh, um, on video, and you can go to Spotify and listen to the songs as well. I think we won, we won uh, two Bo Cameronian Awards uh, um, uh, for, for uh, Everworld. Now, what's it? Score in costume, right? Score in costume. Wow. My wife is a fan. You can tell. You can tell, right? Um, we like musicals. Yeah. Um, and so that's an allegory, okay? Um, and so because of that, Song of Solomon has always been read allegorically, okay? Um, but here's the thing, right? When you read Song of Solomon for the first time, you really need to read it at face value first, okay? You need to read it at face value. It doesn't mean that the allegorical reading doesn't exist, okay? Or, or it's invalid. It's totally valid, okay? But good exegesis. Good Bible study means that you always approach the text for what it is first. With in mind, the original recipients, okay? In other words, if you're reading, say, the book, the, the Paul's letter to, to the Romans, you have to read it as Paul writing to the Romans first, not Jesus speaking to you first. Jesus speaking to you is later Paul writing to the Romans first. The context in Rome first, right? The, the, the people, the Roman recipients first. Understand that, understand the truth underneath that. And only after you understand the truth underneath the immediate layer, then can you look through it to see the deeper layers of what God is saying. And then you will start tapping into universal truths that God says to the Romans and then to the churches after that, all the way to us today. That's responsible Bible study. 
And if you don't do this, then sometimes that's how we can end up reading our Bible and we immediately try to read ourselves into it, you know, and then we make errors and we interpret things for ourselves in a very self-centered way. And that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not responsible Bible reading. So when you read Song of Solomon, you must encounter the reality that it is talking about physical, bodily sex and bodily intimacy first. We cannot sidestep it. It is talking about that. We, we, we have to encounter that, face up to it, be prepared to accept that the Bible has one tricky book that talks about these things and, 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 and make peace with it. And it really, it's only when you can make peace with it that you can actually confidently push through it to the next level of reading where you can say underneath this, the love that this man has for this woman and the longings this woman has for him is a universal longing for love, which was what we talked about last week, right? A deep primordial longing to be noticed, loved, wanted, and to be seen as beautiful. And only after that can we push through it to see Song of Solomon as ultimately talking about God's love for us, such that the love you have here in a physical form, the, 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 the love that you have here in a universal longing form are all signposts. They are signposts. It's like the, the, the road sign that's pointing you, so to speak, to Ipoh or to Penang, right? It's not there yet. It's real, but it's not there yet. And it's telling you, keep going, keep going, keep driving. Because if you keep going, you will finally reach a place where you say, I see. In its ultimate level, Song of Solomon is pointing us toward God's love for us. And when you read your Bible this way, you don't just have this, you have this layered on top of this, and these two layered on top of this, and you have a richer understanding of Scripture. Okay? Okay? And so, and so I'm going to take you guys to, oh, I'm going to show, I'm going to show you though, I'm going to show you. Remember I told you from the early, earliest days, they, now if you don't do this, you jump straight, okay? That's bypassing, okay? You're, you're avoiding the issue, okay? Uh, you're doing some kind of some kind of short-circuiting, okay? And if you know electricity, you don't want to short-circuit anything, right? You don't want to jump straight to conclusion without going through it. It's like at math, okay? You may get the right... Um, okay, it's not like at math, right? Um, at math is the opposite. You can, you, you, you can get the Jalan Kerja right and you still get points in your exam even though you get the answer wrong. This is like... This is, I don't know what kind of math, but you can tikam and get... This is like multiple choice, okay? You can tikam the right answer, okay? But your Jalan Kerja is all wrong. Right? Or you have no Jalan Kerja. You just buta buta whack, right? But we are, we, are, we, are, we are older than that. We are past that already, right? Now, Matthew Poole, 1624 to 1679. Okay? Christian commentator says this. The Song of Solomon is breathing forth the hottest flames of love between Christ and his people. Most sweet and comfortable and useful to all that read it with serious and Christian eyes. You can feel how, I don't know, how, let's <laughs> say prudish, how prudish the ancients uh, were, how, um, uh, um, what's the BM word? Uh, kolot, is it? Is it the BM word? Kolot. How kolot uh, they were about some of these things, right? That, that, that's, the, that's the original reason. George Burroughs, 1853, he says this, it is an allegorical illustration of the, Operations of love in the bosom of the saints 
and the retainer, right? So that's the primary lens, right? Um, now, uh, let's move on, okay? I want to show you two things, okay? Um, today, I want to show you that the sexuality in the Song of Solomon, okay, points towards the love of God. And secondly, the sexuality in songs points us towards fidelity to God. First is the love of God to us. And secondly, it's the fidelity that we can show back to Him. Okay, let's start with the first one. The sexuality in songs points us towards the love of God. Now, um, uh, oh, C.S. Lewis. Again, I'm still on Lewis. Lewis gave this illustration, right? Um, of Imagine you're in a hall right now, okay? And then we dim the light and there is a stage light, right? The stage light. It may be colorful, it may be pulsating, I'm not sure, okay? Let's, let's bring it to the 21st century. Imagine I put here, I flatten this, and I put a, a plate, a dish, with a cover on it, okay? And all of you are like looking at this dish, and I open it slowly, and there's music. And I open the, 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 the lid, okay? And then you see the edge of a piece of steak. Why you... Steak, um, marbling, how many, how much marbling? I don't, you can't tell from there, right? But you can see something. And the moment you see a bit of steak, all of you all go like, wah, wah, okay? It's a, bit, it's a bit extreme, right? And then you open some more and you see some bacon and some of you are standing up going like, yeah! And then you show more and there's fries and some of you are like taking money and throwing it out onto the stage, you know, say, give, give me this, give me this, you know? And then, and then I cover it and then everybody goes wild and the music keeps pulsating and the lights are like flashing. Wouldn't you say that you guys have a really disordered appetite for food. If, if our culture treated food like that, right, you would say that we have a pretty diseased, dysfunctional appetite for food. A little bit over the top. But we have that same kind of appetite for sex. A little bit, everyone goes crazy, start throwing money on stage, you know. And I know I'm exaggerating it a bit. I'm taking it, you know, you're just picking on from where Lewis took it, you know, and saying that, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to think a little bit more about how our society thinks about and elevates sex as some godlike status thing. But here's the thing, right? If everything in our world points towards God, and maybe we should talk about this, right? That everything around us should be pointing towards God, right? Our people, when you see each other, you should see fellow images of God. When you see the things around us, all of the things around us should give us, should be samples, should be, should be um, uh, uh, little clues that there is something bigger than itself. The chair tells us that there's something beyond the chair. Right? The lights should point us towards the greater heavenly light. Each other should point us towards Jesus. When society forgets, let me just show you what Yancy says. When a society loses its faith in God or God, lesser powers arise to take their place. 
And so to a large extent, our society has, has killed God, right? I know people always, people always throw Nietzsche under the bus with that quote that uh, God is dead. Actually, that's not what he meant, okay? Uh, um, uh, but, but to a large extent, we have become more atheistic or maybe more, um, I don't know if it's fair to say scientific or maybe it is fair to say uh, more agnostic. We just say, I don't really know, so I don't really care, you know? I don't really want to, 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 to throw my lot in. Right? But when society loses its faith in God, lesser powers arise to take their place. And yet, God still has put eternity into the hearts of men. We still long. We still long for something transcendent, bigger, more lasting, more eternal. And so, we, we misplace it. We, we are confused in where to put it and we misplace it in all kinds of things. And that's why sometimes uh, um, in, in some parts of our real world, we misplace it on a, on a stage with, with, with people undressing and, 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 and in a hypothetical world, we misplace it in throwing money at a, at a plate of steak, right? Um, but, but really, every time we make that bid, that bid for, for affection, for love, for something, it is not, as I said last week, just a bit for love for ourselves. We are all actually seeking that transcendent thing that we don't really know, right? So we're all seeking for God. When we make a bit for something in this world, we are seeking God. In fact, G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. Wow. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. There is an emptiness in him that, that drives him. There is a loneliness in him that drives him out of his house, into his car. There is a dissatisfaction with where he is. There is an unhappiness in him that drives him literally to the door. And that same brokenness, that same mangled self-image knocks and he doesn't know it he's knocking hoping that god will be on the other side and all he gets is what he gets it's a true for every single one of us and so my friends um i was just i was just telling athelia after i was reading this quote and i was telling athelia that you know babe um right now i really want to eat uh <laughs> <laughs> Every man who knocks on the door of Krepe Pisan is really seeking God. That's me, right? Um, that's, uh, okay, let's, let, let's move on. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, right? We were familiar with this. The next verse, actually, Songs chapter 1, it opens this way. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. I just want us to think about this one. The caresses of her lover are better than wine. Now, what does wine do? Right, wine uh, um, um, makes you happy. I don't know. Does wine make you happy? Does wine make everything rose tinted for you? Right? Maybe after several wines, does wine it lowers inhibition? Right? You're 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 more you're more ready to talk. You're more ready to 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 interact. You become less shy. It helps you to forget a little bit. Um, unless it unless it doesn't. I don't know. Does does your wine do that for you? My wine doesn't do that for me, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But your caresses are greater than wine. It points beyond the physical impact. 
It points beyond the physical transformation in me. So that what he's really saying, when you can start reading this allegorically, when you start seeing this symbolically, you're saying that, God, your love for me is better than the things in this world that bring me satisfaction. It's sweeter than wine. It, the, the safety I feel in Christ is better than the false, the counterfeit safety I feel after three wines, right? My ability to open up it, uh, in, in Christ is better, safer, more concrete, more eternally secure than the counterfeit security I have to, to open my mouth and talk nonsense after three, four wines, right? And, and the joy, the, 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 the sense of being light and happier and maybe a sense of a little bit of a high, right, um, is truer, more long-lasting in Christ than it is in the counterfeit of having alcohol coursing through your blood. It is better than wine. Security in God, loving God, found in God is better than being found in wine. Now, I want to move on. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. So, Blow Church, when you hear this, what do you see? Think of what other parts of the Bible do you see? Shout it out. Shout it out. Your name is perfume poured out. Come on, come on. I'm so shy. I think I need to give you a wine. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is too, too, too early on a Sunday, right? I think of Mary of Bethany at the feet of Jesus. Ah, now you're nodding. Just now didn't say it. Now nodding, right? I think of Mary of Bethany breaking the alabaster jar of perfume at the feet of Jesus. So to speak, wasting that perfume. But it, it was not a problem. It's wasting to eyes who don't have, who, who don't, have eyes, those, those who don't have eyes to see the worth of the one she's anointing. But even back in Songs, chapter 1, your name is perfume poured out. To pour out perfume is either for application, you kind of drop perfume, you may dab perfume, or to pour out perfume is very extravagant. It may not immediately be called wasting, but it's certainly very extravagant to pour out perfume. Your name, that name, I recall now Philippians 2, which is above every other name. The name which, to which every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. That name, that name, King Jesus Christ. It's like perfume poured out. And it could just be, now I just want to tickle your thought on this, okay? Could it be that when Mary of Bethany broke the alabaster jar, anointed Jesus' feet. And you can read about it in John chapter 13, I think, right? Um, 12. She anointed Jesus' feet and poured it out and it was scandalous for those who were watching precisely because they remember this. Precisely because it is a reenactment of a very, very saucy book. At least to them, it's a very saucy book. It's a reenactment of songs. The devotee and her master pour out perfume 
And that's the love. Now, see, if it was, now I can't tell you it was, huh? okay? Though I do know that the Jewish teachers of the law know their Hebrew text very, very, very well. They memorize entire books, entire books on her, okay? Now, it's quite possible, if it was, that what their problem is, is that to them, they are equating the Jesus to the sex. But what it really should be is that the sex is pointing towards the Jesus. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Because you have to know which is the image and which is the actual. The actual is being reflected as an image. The earthly sex is an image reflecting the actual. The actual is the relationship with God. Now, if you get that wrong, you're going to say, yeah, how come uh, your God uh, um, received uh, uh, acts of devotion that is actually like human sex? Oh, is he a bit sexed up, right? And no, it's not. Because then you're saying that how come the actual looks so much like the image? Looks so much like the reflection. But it doesn't work that way, right? So we need to know which is the original and which is the reflection of the original. Let me move on. Wow, songs too. Okay, I'm just going to read this, okay, because it's a very interesting, different part of songs, okay? I want you all to be able to touch many parts of Song of Solomon before we're through. My love calls to me, arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one, for now the winter is past. The rain has ended and gone away. The blossoms appear in the countryside. The time of singing has come, and the turtle dove's cooing is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling. Come away, my beautiful one. When you see this, now, some of you may immediately see shades of other parts of the Bible. Some of you don't, okay? It's okay if you don't. I saw shades of Isaiah 43. And you're like, what's Isaiah 43, right? Isaiah 43 is this. See, I am doing a new thing. See? Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, the streams and the wasteland, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. This is covenantal language, that they may proclaim my praise. My love calls to me, arise my darling. See, I am doing a new thing. For now the winter is past. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Both texts, one in the context of, of, of love between a man and a woman, another in the context of God renewing the land and preparing it for the covenantal entry of his people, right? And, and, and so the, 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 both texts show you that winter is passing, right? The dark days are over. I'm bringing something new. Right? This whole part in the center speaks of the, actually what this whole comparison is here to show you, I'm showing you that songs is so rich in the way it kind of like relates to other parts of scripture because what's really happening is songs too is showing that the created order is in agreement with the onset, with the beginning of a covenantal love. There is a covenantal love happening between the man and the woman. And all of creation, all the heavens and the earth are in agreement with the beginning of this covenantal love between man and a woman. Isaiah 43 is doing a similar thing. All of creation is in agreement with the beginning, the onset of covenantal restoration 
between God and his people. So we can see that as God's people enter into his promises, enter into a covenant, in the same way Song of Solomon prepares you in sexual language for the woman entering into the man, right? Coming into that covenantal physical physicality, covenantal intimacy with him. So this, I wanted to show you because when I saw it, I, I, I thought it was, it was beautiful. Songs 3, so I'm taking you from Songs 1, Songs 2, Songs chapter 3. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. You're familiar with this now, right? I sought him, but I did not find him. I will arise now, I said, and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I want to broach a topic. I want to broach a topic um, that maybe is not broached enough in church. Because as much as Song of Solomon is about the passion and the love and the access from the man to the woman and, and, and back and forth, as well as the church, his people, to Jesus, as well as to the, to, to the Jewish readers, you know, of Israel to Yahweh, right? Um, as much as it is that, Song of Solomon presents to us a picture that is not entirely rosy and it's not an always easy. It certainly does not behave like, like a... Like, like, like a vending machine, right? Like, like you, you go to God, you press this love button, you know, and then boom, you get the love, you know, and, you, and, and, then, you, and then you get your dopamine kick, and then you press again, boom, you get, you press again, and boom, you get again, right? That's not, I mean, that's a lab rat, you know, fishing for food, right? But God has not created the way he gives love. He doesn't give love that way, right? The way he gives love sometimes includes arising at night saying, where is the one I love? The way he has built his relationship of love with us is that some nights we will seek him and find him hard to find. I sought him. I did not find him. There is much to say about this. In, in, in the ancients, the Christian ancients uh, um, used to call this phenomenon the dark night of the soul, right? And if you, you're familiar with John the Cross, okay, and maybe next year we'll look at this. Next year, by the way, we're going to do a little series on Job, okay? We're going to do a little series on Job. Um, I'm committed to going through all the wisdom texts, right, um, early in our church life. So we're going to do a little bit on Job, and when we look at Job, we'll look at the dark night of the soul. What is this dark night? It is when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, right? But you still have to walk through it. Huh? There's no spiritual bypassing. Every day, I take you from the pasture land straight to the table, anoint you with oil. And, and really, I'm presenting to you, if I do that, huh? Singapore Church, if I do that, I'm presenting to you a counterfeit discipleship journey. I take out all the difficult parts and I give all the easy parts and then I can attract tens of thousands of people because it's such a feel-good message, and you go through life, and you realize it doesn't work, because there are lots of difficult parts that nobody ever told me about, and I come to you and I say, no, you just don't have enough faith. And I load the burden and blame back on you, and then you live with this fear like, really, I guess I don't have enough faith, that's why life is difficult. No! 
I mean, sometimes yes, but not always yes. Sometimes no. Sometimes the trials and the troubles that you face are because life is difficult and because I should have told you that life will be difficult and I should have told you that sometimes you will seek Him and you will not find Him and you need to keep seeking Him because on dark nights when you can, when, when you go when you go through a moment like that, you, are, you do your Bible reading and you get no joy out of it. You worship God and you get no joy out of it. You pray in following all the same disciplines that you used to uh, when, when it was such sweet uh, um, uh, uh, joy for you and somehow nothing comes. It's like a banging against a wall in the, in the darkest night and you just can't break through it. I sought him. I did not find him. And what's worse, is that sometimes, in spite, I'm going to jump you to Psalms chapter 5, I sought him, I could not find him. This is when the, when the woman reprises. Okay, there's a reprisal of it, right? I called him, he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. Now church, to take a woman's veil off her is a form of undressing. It's a form of I would, I, I would go as far as to say it's a form of sexual assault, okay? It's a form of sexual assault. But if we're reading this allegorically, who are the watchmen in the city? She's looking for the one she loves. She's not looking for the watchmen. The watchmen are supposed to point her to the one she loves. Who are the watchmen? Ezekiel 34. The shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of Israel should have been pointing the bride to their God. So when I see this, I see Ezekiel 34. Because the watchmen, shepherds of Israel, did not point them to God. Did not shepherd them. The sick, they did not heal. The lost, they did not find. Right? The, 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 the broken, they did not mend. Instead, they exploited them and abused them. And that's what's happening here. And so I, I, I think it's important when we see the pursuit of God that we see in the whole of Song of Solomon that it is a, it is a pursuit that has a dark side to it. Not just the happy, schmappy parts, but if you lift it, there is an underbelly of the reality of the pain and the difficulty and sometimes the abuse and sometimes the sin of people who should have been pointing you in the direction of the one you love and instead beat you, wounded you, assaulted you, shamed you, wounded you, took your veil off. And that's part of the reality. Still, she, she comes out of this, huh? She comes out of this, this does not cripple her. She continues seeking the one she loves until she finds him. And I think that's very aspirational. I've got a lot of notes. I want to make sure I follow them today. The first point was that the sexuality in songs points us towards the love of God. The second point is this, that the sexuality in Song of Solomon points us towards our fidelity to God. Now, our fidelity to God. When I was researching, I want to do this very quickly. When I was researching uh, um, for songs, um, and I say this because I, I expect you guys to, to be to, to have your appetite wet and to go do some reading for yourself. Okay, I, I, and I think I assume that for all my sermons, I assume that for all not because the sermons are that great, but because you love your Bible. 
right? And I say this online, you want to learn it, you want to love it, right? Come here, you know, we'll foster a culture of learning the Bible, loving the Bible. And so I really want to encourage you, go, go get a study Bible, man. It's great. You'll get a good study Bible. Talk to us. We are geeks about, about what, what to buy, you know, uh, um, and, and immerse in it, right? But here's one thing. On this particular point, when I was doing my research, I found it slightly frustrating because I found that for Song of Solomon, commentators and academics, academics, scholars, tend to be very scholarly about Song of Solomon. And I don't know if you should be scholarly about Song of Solomon. You can, I guess there's a place for it. But they also seem to be quite afraid. And I just want to do this very quickly, okay? One of the things I found is that most scholars want Song of Solomon to be about heterosexual monogamy, okay? I'm not sure... Oh no, I lost, I lost the bottom part. Never mind, it's okay. Um, I'm not sure if Song of Solomon is, a, is teaching you about heterosexual monogamy, but one of, one of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the books that I was reading says, monogamous heterosexual marriage was the proper context for sexual activity uh, within the blah, blah, blah of Song of Solomon. But appreciate the overall ethical context of Song of Solomon, right? And so I read this and I was thinking, this might be reading it with 21st century eyes, okay? A little bit, a little bit, okay? Uh, don't worry. Um, um, also, you're trying to interpret most of, now, this is part of the prudishness, right? Is that sometimes uh, they, they you, you remember I told you that some of the body boundaries between the man and the woman, um, not quite what we expect, right? And then, and because of that, um, you have to start placing when did they get married? Because if you're conservative, you want to try to find the earliest point, they're married here. So that after that, all their physical interaction is halal already, right? Because you get married, then after that, can ma, whatever you want to do in the bedroom, can ma, right? Um, more likely, they get married in chapter 8. And so, you have to find a way to explain all the physicality, you know, before it, right? And quite, quite, <laughs> quite a lot of commentators interpret the in-between part 3 to 5, chapters 3 to 5, as a dream sequence. So it didn't really happen. I think I pressed the mute button. They didn't really um, uh, get bodily <laughs> with one another. Um, it was probably a dream scene, right? Um, the dream expresses the eager, the eager erotic desires that the young man and woman have for each other within the context of biblical morality. I, I can feel that, that a lot of Bible commentators and teachers are very... Uh, they're, they're, okay, they're a bit scared. Yeah, I think I can feel that they're a bit scared. You're a bit scared that if I give you Song of Songs, you're going to take it and you're going to say, wow, it's licensed to mess around. I think you're going to mess around, right? And they, they feel a genuine responsibility to the Lord to make sure they don't stumble anyone. So I'm not here to knock this, okay? I'm just here to show you uh, um, um, what's happening, okay? It's from purely scholarship point of view, I think it's a little bit stretching, a little bit to 21st century in the thinking, but I understand the heart. So as your pastor, I want to show you how to manage this, okay? We don't just learn about sexual ethics through Song of Solomon. So just because I give you songs, you read songs, is it that, oh, this one seems to permit some of these things, you know? Um, it's a little bit sketchy whether, where they get married. It's a little bit sketchy whether his hand was under her head and then he dipped her, you know, whether he was really lying on her, you know, things like that. Then you start thinking that, oh, maybe I can do this with my boyfriend too, right? Because the Bible endorses it. No, it doesn't. It's, it's a love poem. It's a, it's a love poem. And maybe 
we need to be, have our sexual ethic informed by the whole Bible. And, and to accept that Song of Solomon shows us something and it's not teaching us sexual boundaries. Song of Solomon was not written to, to be a manual for sex, safe sex boundaries. It wasn't. It's, a, it, it, it's not even a manual, right? It's a love poem to show you uh, um, how deeply besotted they are with one another. That's what it is, okay? So, so, so it's, does Song of Solomon teach monogamy? Honestly, I don't think so, Okay. Uh, um, there is a thing. If you, how many of you, you you read fiction? You read fiction, right? Not many fiction readers here, right? Uh, um, how many of you, you have tried writing fiction, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I know two writers in this in this room, right? If you if you know fiction writers, fiction writers work by this rule. The rule is show, don't tell. Okay, show, don't tell. Show, don't tell means instead of saying um, she was very sad. She was very extremely sad, you know. A, 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 a fiction writer will aspire to say she wept. She wept the whole night, right? So they are showing you she's sad. They're not telling you she's sad. You infer that she is sad based on what's happening to her, right? She wept the whole night, and then after that, she had no more tears left to weep, you know. And and the sadness sank into the pits of her of, of her of her heart, you know, and it stayed there, you know. It's like she, they're not telling you she's sad. Because to tell you that she was sad. She was so extremely sad, right? But and show, don't tell. Song of Solomon is not teaching monogamy. It's showing you finality. And I think it's important because we should not approach songs like a love manual. It's not a love manual. It is a demonstration of love. And I read Eugene Peterson say this, that a scientist, a food scientist, can tell you the acidity of a strawberry. I, I'm embellishing a bit, right? Um, the acidity of a strawberry, the how much glucose content it has, you know, uh, um, how much uh, 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 moisture it has. But a little child who's munching on that strawberry has a very different sort of knowledge about what that strawberry is. And quite frankly, that little child may have knowledge that is much more conducive living than the one the food scientist has. Think about it, right? Song of Solomon is doing that with that strawberry, right? As opposed to studying it, right? Now, last week, I showed you this slide, right? We talked a little bit about sexual intimacy in marriage, sexual intimacy in singlehood. And there's just one more thing I want to layer um, because I feel burdened um, to just say a few more things about it. In particular, I want to speak about fidelity in singleness. And with, for this, I really need my notes, right? Um, I'm sorry for the, sorry for the, for the visual joke. Um, the visual joke is there, the plant, in case you weren't here last week, the plant is there because sometimes church expects singles to have no sexual desires. We expect our singles to be plants. But I know you're not plants, and you, you should not be plants. You have sexual desires that are valid, that are necessary, that are helpful. Now you think, how on earth are my sexual desires helpful when I'm not married and I don't have anyone to enact them on? It does not make sense. Right? Pastor, I wish it would just go away. Frankly, if you give me this sexual ethic, this Judeo-Christian sexual ethic with all the body boundaries that you've told me that I should keep, and then I still have these feelings, I think it's just not fair. And I wish that it would just go away. And I felt that too myself. Not even as a Christian, I felt it as a married man too, right? And as a, as a younger 
men wanting very much to be Christian, wanting very much to be right before God, to, you know, not look at a woman lustfully, if not gouge out your eyes, if not, you know, you've, you've, you've committed adultery. Um, I would devise all these kind of mental, emotional ways to starve and beat, beat this, this, this sexual desires out of myself. And, and some, someone, a bit like Jerome, right? A bit like Jerome. Um, and sometimes it works and you just learn to starve yourself of it, sometimes it works too well. And when it works too well, it's a bit like an old-fashioned chemotherapy drug. It goes in, and all the good and the bad, it just destroys everything in its path. And I'm not surprised, I would not be surprised if some of you have gone through that kind of journey yourselves. To the extent that you get married, and now you're expected to suddenly from being maximally chaste and, and entirely pure and you've kept not just a uh, uh, man uh, one foot from your body but one billion miles from your body and suddenly you somehow manage to get married and then overnight you're supposed to have great sex. And it's all supposed to be magically become good for you, right? And that's patently untrue. And that is not to endorse trying each other out before you get married? Of course not. But it is definitely to be honest and real about it that if you pour some kind of sexual chemotherapy drug right through your system, right through your heart, and you sear away not just the desires that you are longing to keep at bay, but all desires, you may find yourself in your marital bed feeling quite defective. And feeling like, actually... I've seared through everything. I've been so chaste, so overly chaste, so self-consciously chaste, that now I, don't, I really don't know how to do this. And I thought, I thought once I get married, it would all come naturally, but I'm learning that it hasn't. And I'm learning that I have to allow someone near to me. I have to actually allow myself to, to, to detach them and say, don't, don't really like me, like, get off me, you know, like I'm not used to this. Whatever it may be for you or for each other, we should not assume that singlehood transits to marital bliss so seamlessly. I want to say this about singlehood. Your singlehood is sometimes undervalued, especially in church, certainly in the world. We live in a world, and I talked about this a bit last week, that exalts romance. Exalts romance, right? It's a, it's a major export, not just of one, one country's media, of every country's media, right? It's a massive, massive export, this idea of romance, the storytelling of romance. And we saw last week that sometimes the reality on the ground is not quite as rosy. And sometimes we realize not just, not just through the sale of, sale of romance, but through the sale of escapism that I shared with you about Bollywood, that, that maybe it is not that, you know, um, they are so good at it, that they are exporting it. Maybe it's precisely because there is a defect in the system and in the culture that there is a gaping hole in the way they relate, relate and interact and find lack of intimacy with one another that when they tell stories, they tell the fantasy stories where everything works out so well. And we should not be hoodwinked 
into thinking that just because we can turn on our TVs and watch copious hours of fantasy, romantic fantasy, that it will necessarily translate to being easy in our lives. It doesn't work that way. And for you, singles, to be in this space, day in, day out, bombarded by these messages, I want to reach out to you and say that your singleness is undervalued. The world tells you, over tells you, that you need to have a romantic relationship. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. You need to be sexually active. If not, you're defective. It's not true. It's a lie. I'm telling you right now, it is a lie. And the church may sometimes unintentionally tell you that you need to, have to be married and, and only when you're married, then your sexuality becomes valid. And, and only after that, that you can have meaning, like true meaning. The most ultimate expression of meaning is when you're married because marriage represents Jesus and the church being uh, uh, love and, and, and all that. And I can tell you, it undervalues your singleness. Jesus was a single. Paul was a single. The two biggest contributors to the New Testament were both singles. And I dare say they could contribute so extensively to the ministry of God's total, you know, salvation of the world because they were single. Paul himself says, I wish all of you could be single as I am, but if you can't, don't. But if you can, do it. Because you know what? Those married guys, they don't have time to sink into kingdom building the way we do. That's exactly what Paul says, right? He says, I wish if you can, you would. Because if you do, there is much value for you in the kingdom. Do it. Be like me if you can. That's what he says. He says, if, but if you can't, if you burn with passion, then get married. If you can, get married. I'm really speaking to all of us today. Some of us are single because we have chosen it. Some of us are single because we have not chosen it. And some of us are single because, um, because we have lost our partner sometimes through death sometimes through divorce, sometimes through whatever other circumstance. And we find ourselves single, and maybe we don't want to be single. But I want you to know this. You are set apart. You are set apart. The entire basis of you being a Christian is to be set apart. And in your singleness, you can steward your sexuality as a single person to honor God by being set apart and to wait in your longing with trust and hope that God will be worth it on the other shore. You hear me, church? That you can hold on to your sexuality and your passions and say that these are real, Lord, but I hold on to you. Some of us are single because we are same-sex attracted and we are faithful to God and we will not act on it and we have just decided that for the rest of my life, I'm just going to have to be a celibate gay or a celibate lesbian, right? And I'm not going to act on it. I want to live right by God. And if that is you or if any other example of singleness that I've spoken about, that will be your journey to steward your sexual energy, your sexual desires, and say, I want this to point to God so that when and as you steward it and keep it, and let it be a signpost towards God, 
others seeing your life will say that I see that waiting is hard. In my own life, I'm waiting. And some people are waiting for bodily sickness to be healed and they don't see it here. Some are waiting for mental illness to be relieved and they don't see it relieved. Some are waiting for financial breakthrough and they may they are not seeing it, they may never see it and maybe sometimes we shortchange people by saying that you will definitely get your breakthrough. Some people don't. Some people go through long seasons of dark nights. And you as a single, stewarding your sexuality, holding it, waiting, hoping, preparing yourself for your lover, your beloved, who is on the other shore, becomes an inspiration and a signpost and a signal for others to look and say that in my own version of waiting, I shall wait. I shall wait faithfully because I've seen you wait. And you have become for me a picture of God's grace. You have become for me a picture of God's faithfulness. That's how, if you're single, you can steward your sexuality. I want to speak about fidelity in marriage. And then we'll close. We always think, as I said just now, that once you're married, boom, everything's okay. You're good, you're settled, you're, you're like, check, check, yay. And then we kind of take our eyes off the married fellas, maybe. We think that, oh, it's all good, maybe. Their sex life is going to be great. And as I showed you, it may not, you know. Um, we think that um, they're going to be happily married forever after, you know. And then six years later, you need post-marital care, you know. Um, I want to say this, that if you're married, your fidelity in your marriage is also a signpost that points not just you and your spouse, but also the family of people around you in church and outside of church towards the fidelity that God desires from you, the covenantal fidelity that God desires from us. And it works kind of like this. You know, I shared just now with you that sex life doesn't nat nat naturally become great once you're married. Neither does being faithful with your eyes, neither does being faithful in your heart. And when I was a single, I used to think that, ah, oh, if God, if God, Girl ready, married ready, can have sex ready. Then one more you want, apa lagi china mau? You know, it's all done ready, ma. Right? Like when you horny, you can have sex. What for? What like what? What more? I can't, you know. I'm from five, and I'm burning with passion. And all you married uncles, like like, how can you possibly have an affair? You've a wife. Like just do it, just do it, right? And then I grew up and got married and realized that actually it doesn't quite work that way, long, right? that the heart is always a lonely hunter. It keeps on hunting. And because your wife and your husband is not that perfect lover, they will always leave parts of your own satisfactions dissatisfied and unsatisfied. And it is not fair to load on your husband or to load onto your wife the entire burden to meet all of your emotional needs. You need a tribe around you. You need girlfriends. You need bros. You need uncles and aunties. You need a village to steward yourself into an adulthood that is holistic, that is holy, that is loving, and that is well-supported. And so, my friends, if you're married, and in all likelihood, you have found your heart slipping in one way or another, 
your heart may be slipping towards a real human being, your heart may be slipping towards a bunch of pixels on a screen, it really ends up being the same thing. That your heart slides around looking for a lover who can meet you where your spouse has not been able to meet you. And really, you're knocking on that door, but you're really seeking for God. And your fidelity in your marriage, also set apart. Set apart for one. And some of you might say, set apart for none. It's easier than set apart for one. <laughs> because, when, when, because none can't disappoint you. Having no partner, the absence of a partner can't wound you, can't hurt you, can't, can't fight with you, can't say hurtful words to you, can't make you feel like you would rather kill them or kill yourself. An absence of a lover can't do that for you. But one lover can. And sometimes one lover can push you to the brink. We always joke, Athelia and I, that we wanted to murder each other it would have been easier than suicide. One of the two uh, um, uh, was definitely uh, 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 tempting us at many points in our earliest years of our marriage. But your fidelity in your marriage, and I'll stick to my notes, your commitment to keep sowing into the marriage, even though it feels like a million deaths, even though sometimes it is not reciprocal, will be a signpost to the people around you that through the dark days, you hang on to the love, to your promise, because Jesus hangs on to every one of his promises. You just go get the worship team to come up. Church, if you're married, some of one way you're going to love each other and to hold on in fidelity to your marriage is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice for one another. A lot of marriages fail. Because I will not sacrifice for you, I want to live my life. And you will not sacrifice for me, you want to live your life. And it's hard to lay down your own life for each other. The Bible says, daily pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So marriage has singles, marriage has its own quirks, its own wounds, its own difficulties. But I want to end this whole Song of Solomon series on what I believe and there are quite a lot of Bible scholars who believe the same, on the marital vow exchange. It's not explicitly marital vow exchanges, though after reading it, I kind of thought that if I could redo my wedding, I would make this my wedding vows. The woman says to the man, at the end, near the end of chapter 8, place me, well, near the start of chapter 8, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, it's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. Just think about that. Love, as strong as death, jealousy, as unyielding as the grave. I can tell you this, Jesus did not place you as a seal on his arm, literally. He placed you on as, as a seal on his hands. He placed you as a seal maybe around where the wrist is. When 
nine-inch long nails were driven into both his hands to show you how much he loves you, to bear your burden, to self-sacrifice for you. He placed you as a seal over his heart. And his love, strong as his death, he died to show you his love. That's what he means. Love as strong as death. Jealousy for your love as unyielding as the grave. That's his love for us. He burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. This is God's love for you. Many waters cannot quench that. Rivers cannot sweep it away. And when I read this, my mind goes to the end of Romans chapter 8. It says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the past, nor the future, nor any powers. Nothing can separate me. Nothing shall separate me from the love of my God, which is Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing can sweep his love away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Church, one of the things about being called into a romance with God, a love with God, a journey of holding on to Him until we are consummated on that other shore. Consummation doesn't happen here. We get glimpses of it. We get samples of it. But the consummation happens on that other side. There will always be a hole in your heart. Pulsating, pushing you forward, looking to knock on one door or another. But if you were to trade everything for his love, it would still not measure up. Church, Song of Solomon teaches us ultimately, reveals to us ultimately how much he loves you, how fiery, how passionate, how, how, how faithful is his love for you. And he bids you, come, arise, and come with me. And he wants you to say the same back to him. Come, arise, come with me. Let's all rise. Let's all rise. And as we, as we close up this whole series, I want you to remember the marks on his hands, how your sin has been forgiven, how he loves you with a love that led him to death and how many waters can never quench his love for you. But we love him in the same way today. Father Lord, we know Lord God that you have called us into a covenant with you and you always keep covenant with us and we pray Lord God that in any way we can keep covenant back with you. It is only by the grace of God, by the enabling power of your mercies poured out generously upon us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So Father, I thank you and I speak your blessing over every one of us. You can just rest in God for a moment.
I just feel that to pray. I'm just going to close by, just feel that by the Spirit, just to allow you a moment to be ministered to by the Spirit. If you feel lonely, either in singleness or in marriage, turn to Him today. Turn to Him today. The Lord Jesus is your ever-present help in need. His name is Emmanuel, God with you. He says, surely I am with you until the end of the age. Hang on to him. If you feel, if you know that you have made mistakes and there is what sometimes people call sexual failure, you've crossed the line or you've had the lines crossed on you, you have done things you wish you could erase, but no, no time can erase it. No new experiences can erase it. It is still there. The Lord wants you to know His blood covers it for you today. And every one of those experiences which brought wounds, which brought pain, which brought scars that have not been able to be erased today over you, he says, my blood washes you clean. And I cleanse you in your conscience. I forgive you. Will you forgive yourself? Will you let yourself go? I cleanse you. Not just in my eyes, I cleanse you in your own conscience. Forgive you. Daughter, I forgive you. Son, I forgive you. You are free. Set free. God, separate us now with your blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn his face to shine upon you and be gracious with you. May the Lord turn his countenance toward you and give you shalom. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.